Welcome to each of you to our service this morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Welcome to our visitors. Glad you're here with us this morning. And trust that we all together can be blessed and also want to wish you God's grace and peace. Larry read from Romans chapter 12. I plan to continue the series in 1 Peter. So you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at verses 8 and eight through 12 this morning. And uh, what Larry read there from Romans 12, a lot of things that we're looking at this morning, it also mentions there in Romans chapter 12. So looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, as you recall in the last number of messages that I had, I was looking or preaching on submission, and it was been, there was a message on submission to government, and one on submission in the workplace, another one on wives submitting to their husbands. And in our text today, Peter addresses how we are to relate to each other, there especially in verse 8. And so we are focusing on brotherhood submission. And as you think of, if you recall the, the context here of 1 Peter and who Peter is writing to, he is writing to a persecuted church, believers that were being persecuted. And each one of these areas that he mentions here about submission, the submission to government and in the workplace, and wives submitting to their husbands, and then also submitting to each other. If you notice that Peter does not, does not deal so much with the authorities, but with those under authority. We all come under authority. It doesn't matter who you are, but we all come under authority. None of us are exempt from being under authority. And then in your mind, I wonder which area you would say that you struggle or that we struggle with the most in submission. In these four areas that we've been looking at, the, the ones that I did, that we did look at, and also the one today, which one would you say that we struggle the most with? I'll let you think about that. We're going to read this passage here, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they may speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Peter here is summing up his subject of submission, and in the King James Version, it uses the word finally. And that's the idea of some versions would say to sum up. He gives us that idea that he wants to sum up and he wants, us, wants to draw our attention to one more thing. And he is including 
everyone, all believers in the church. It's for all of us. He says, finally, be ye all. And I want to, first of all, take a look at these five things that he mentions here in verse 8. I'll call them five virtues that are mentioned here. And the first one that he draws our attention to, he says, Be ye all of one mind. And when you think of one mind, what do you think of? Be ye all of one mind. We think of unity, being like-minded, harmony. How is it possible for a hundred people to be of one mind? Does that mean we're thinking the same thing? I, I highly doubt that you're all thinking the same thing here, sitting here this morning. Our thoughts kind of wander and go all over the place. But he says, be ye of one mind. This thing of or having a common mindset, it has the idea of having a common mindset, but not necessarily all the same taste or gifts. This thing of one mind has to do with who God is and how we view him. And with what the scripture says about himself. And then also living out the things that scripture teaches us of being of one mind in that way. Romans fifteen six, That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There again, that thought of one mind, one mouth glorifying God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the, it's the thing of having the one mind is fo focusing on the Father and on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you think of our triune God is a perfect or supreme example of unity. God, who is love, has forever existed in perfectly pure unity as Father Son and Holy Spirit. And there we have, so we have a supreme example of unity of one mind. How can we ever attain that supremacy? And we never will. And yet God has given us his spirit. Yes, we're not going to be perfect like God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're there there is oneness. There is always oneness. They, they think the same thing. But God gives us the ability to do this. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 21, Jesus was praying for his disciples and for us that that is what would be done, that there would be a oneness. He said that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Quite a prayer that Jesus had there for us. That we would be one as the Father. Even as him and the Father were one. Jesus expressed that there's, there's power in unity. There's power in oneness. And Jesus' concern was that there would be oneness. Because when there is oneness... 
It also draws others to him. There's a, there's a witness, there's a powerful witness when there is a oneness with a group of people. Unity does not necessarily mean uniformity, but it does mean a cooperation in the midst of diversity. Think about how the members of our physical body work together. They work together in unity. If they do not, there's, there's, there's problems. And I think at times that's why we face our physical ailments, because not everything is working together in unity. And yet, for the most part, our, our body is, was created to function in unity. Even though each part of our body is different. And it's the same way in the church. When there is oneness, there is a working together that is unique, that, is, that draws people to God also. As Christians, we differ. We, we, we're different. We differ from one another on how things are to be done. But I think we need to agree on what is to be done and why. Because when there is a oneness in how we view God and what we do for him, that is a, that is a powerful witness to the people around us. And I think we would all recognize that any given organization has, has some common goals in place. And when all those involved recognize this and also have those goals in mind, that it has a positive effect on that organization. If people are on to, on to this, doing the same thing in an organization, there's power in that. There's there's something about that that, is, that has a positive effect on what that organization can accomplish. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, Every kingdom divided, divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And this was in the context of when uh, Jesus had done some healing and some a miracle and they were questioning of why or you know was this who was this from from God or was this from the devil well Jesus said this made this comment like if it's from God or if it's from devil why, why would the devil be working against himself so any kingdom divided against itself is is not going to stand it's that way in any organization it's that way in a church when, there's, when it's divided, it's not going to stand. So Jesus is saying there needs to be a oneness. Peter is, bringing, is reminding us of that. If there's not a working together in oneness, it causes divisions and it's hard to accomplish anything. It's that way in, if you're playing a game, if you're playing volleyball, basketball, and you, you ha it's a team or any kind of team sport if you're playing and you have people on that team that are not really into it you don't accomplish much but it when there's a when there's a team that is playing together they're doing it for one common goal you can get somewhere but if you have a few of those that are just there just because they need to be it, it doesn't work well and there will be frustration 
God has designed it so that we harmonize. And I believe that's also harmony is, is part is another word that you could put in here of being of one mind, being in harmony. As we were singing this morning, you think of our singing. When you have the different parts harmonizing, there's beauty in that. We weren't all singing the same thing. We weren't all singing melody or, or bass or alto. But if when you have that variety and it blends together, it harmonizes, it, it's beautiful. And that's the way God, in our different gifts that God has given us within the church, as we use them for his honor and glory, there's harmony, there's beauty in that. The second thing that he mentions here in verse 8 is compassion. Having compassion, one of another. I think of Jesus as being a perfect example of compassion. A number of times in the Gospels, you can read of occasions that it says that Jesus had compassion. He was moved with compassion. Compassion has the idea of showing sympathy. It's feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity to the need. And it's the idea, or it's the picture of suffering with someone and entering in into and sharing their feelings rather than just simply having compassion on them from a distance. But it's really getting involved and feeling what they are going through. And I think true compassion is, or sympathy, sympathy is usually fairly quiet. It's a time-intensive in, involvement. It's being present. And it's feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity to the need. That's compassion. Romans 12, 15 through 16. Rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Compassion is getting on the other person's level and being there for them. And I found this quote, and I don't know where this comes from, but it, uh, think about this. People usually don't care to know how much you know until they know how much you care. People usually don't care to know how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, we can, we can act like we care, but a person will pick that up. The third thing he mentions here is brotherly love. We know that love is the greatest gift of all. You can do all kinds of good deeds to someone, but if love is missing, the scripture tells us it's, it's as though it is nothing. Brotherly love is so important in the church. So what is brotherly love? I think it can mean a pleasant feeling of belonging and presents a calm atmosphere of, of peaceful friendships. In the biblical context, it's a love seeking the best interest of other believers. And really, it's counting others more important than yourself. 
Philippians 2, 3 says that we shouldn't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, we do things out of humility and, and value others above ourselves. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. To love because he first loved us. Our ability to love is due to the love that God has shown to us because he first loved us. And the way God loves, when we love God, we love others. God has shown us how to love. As a church... We are like family. We, we say we're a church family. And we don't view each other as strangers, but we view each other as brothers and sisters in the church. And I think it should be that way. We should view each other as close family. Because if you think about it, we all have the same Heavenly Father. And that's what makes us a family, a church family. Family can have some some pretty serious squabbles and exchange fairly harsh words. But scripture tells us that love wins. And you, I'm going to read these few verses from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. This is a familiar chapter. And I'm going to read this in the ESV. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13 has a good definition of what love is and what love does. Bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Kind of a big task. Endures all things. That's love. Romans 12.10, this is where uh, Larry had read from this chapter. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. In honor preferring one another. One of the more difficult things in life is to harmoniously manage our relationships. Because relationships involve two or more people. And so, as we know, when there is relationships, there, there is the possibility of things to clash or to be conflict of ideas. But brotherly love honors or prefers the other one. That's brotherly love. Prefers what someone else has to say. The fourth one mentioned here is pitiful. Some translations use the word tender-hearted or kind-hearted. To be pitiful. Pitiful reflects a, a feeling deep within us to show pity and empathy. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I want you to think about this verse. I'll read it again. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. 
He says to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. And sometimes, I don't know how it, how it is with you, but sometimes when, when faced with a difficult situation, one of the things that we want to say, but why? Why, for, why do I need to forgive? Or they don't understand me. And yet this verse says that we, we, we are called to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Because when we have a tenderness of heart, when, there's, when, we're, when we show pity, being tenderhearted means that you have understood forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, I, I believe, brings this out very clearly. Tenderhearted means you have truly understood forgiveness. Because if you're not forgiving towards someone, you will have difficulty with submission in the brotherhood. If we can't forgive, we have difficulty trusting someone. Be tenderhearted, be kindhearted, forgiving. The fifth one is be courteous. has the idea of being friendly. And from what I understand, the Greek meaning of courteous also means to be humble-minded or to be lowly-minded. And so it's a, it's a concept that goes beyond just being courteous or polite. But there's a humility. And humility is not thinking poorly of oneself. Rather, it's having the proper view of myself and of God. And a person of humility thinks of others first before himself. It's living out the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I don't know if you ever find it this way. When you see a person that has the, has the same need or, or maybe going through the same struggle or has failed in the same area over and over again, it's our flesh sort of tends to, to rise up and wants to say that, you know what, I'm, I'm finished being merciful to this person. I'm going to quit being so merciful and compassionate. Because can't that person just grow up? And sometimes we want to be finished with intervening to help every time they struggle. But brotherly love has compassion it loves and it is tender-hearted and it has the best in mind for the for the other person so where is my compassion where is my tender heart and my forgiving heart what is my interest in the other person now that is ways to build up the brotherhood in the last, I think it was the, the most recent Calvary Messenger that was sent out, there was an article in there about eight ways to kill brotherhood. And it was just a short article. I'm not going to go over that, but I, I would encourage you to, to read, read that or take a look at that and think about that, of eight ways to kill the brotherhood. We were looking more here as the positive things that can be done in a brotherhood and how that, as we interact with each other, that we have being of the same mind, 
being of one mind, having compassion. Verse 8 teaches us how to relate to believers. And then moving on to verse 9, this here teaches how to respond to unbelievers. And as Bible-believing people, when someone does something evil against us, I don't think our tendency is, is to necess- necessarily to do evil towards them, but when they revile us or when they say things about us, it might be a little harder for us to hold, to just be quiet, to hold our tongue. Because I don't think that as, as I, like I said, like Bible-believing people, we don't tend to do evil towards someone that does evil toward us. But when things are said about us or against us, we, we tend to want to speak back toward that. But this verse does not say that when there is evil done toward us or if we are being reviled, that we only be quiet or turn the other cheek. But it's saying that we are to give a blessing in return. For myself, I think too often I find it easily to not say anything when I am being wronged. But here it says that we are to return a blessing. I mentioned before that the golden rule is is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And for the world, I think the common rule is to do unto others as they do to you. That is how our flesh wants to respond. To do unto others as they do to you. But here it teaches us that retaliation or revenge are not options for the Christian. That's not part of a, of a person, a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. We do not repay evil for evil. Peter gives us the example of how Jesus responded when he was falsely accused. And you can go back to chapter 2, verse 23 there. It says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. A Puritan wrote this, To return good for evil is godlike. To return good for good is manlike. To return evil for evil is beastlike. To return evil for good is devil-like. I'll say that again. To return good for evil is good is godlike. To return good for good is manlike. To return evil for evil is beastlike and and to return evil for good is devil-like. Who are you like? To repay evil for evil re- accomplishes nothing. Think about how it was in the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If that is constantly the way we would respond, we would have a lot of blind and toothless people. That is the common way to respond. As believers, we are not to do what comes naturally. Do not give what you get, and at the same time, do not do nothing. 
here in this verse, it says to do the supernatural. In response to evil and reviling, we are to bless. Jesus said in Matthew or in Luke 6:28, "Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you." As it says in verse 9 in our text here, we are to bless those that curse us. We are called to do this. This is our calling. And it says that we will inherit that ye should inherit a blessing. An inheritance is a gift. It's not a reward. And when we bless those that curse us, we receive a blessing. And I don't know that I fully understand this. Uh, we, we've had this a little bit of a discussion about blessing and cursing in our Sunday school lesson in our class today. As you know, there in, that, in uh, Psalm 109, you read there of how David was basically cursing his enemies. Or it didn't sound like he was blessing them anyway. How do we reconcile what David did there and what this is saying in our verse today? So we had a little bit of that discussion of where did we go with that? Because some people would, you, you can read that psalm there like, should I? How do I pray for my enemies? Should I pray a, a, a curse on them? But here it says, Knowing that you are there unto call, that ye should inherit it, or but contrarywise a blessing. Knowing that you are there unto call, that ye should inherit a blessing. Jesus said, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. I think we need to remember that Jesus' words, the New Testament, is what we are following. God wants us to bless those who curse us. And in return, we, we inherit a blessing. And a question or a thought to consider. Does God treat us the way that we treat others? As I think about that, if, I, if God would treat me the way that I treat others, what would that look like? What if God would treat me the way that I treat others? Is that how God responds to us? I want you to think about that. And maybe that's a discussion that you can have today or, or think about that even afterward in our uh, time together. But how does God treat us? Does he treat us the way that we treat others? In verse 10 through 12, Peter quotes, we have here Peter quoting from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. It's not quite word for word, but uh, this is where he gets his thoughts from here in verses 10 through 12 in our text. And it gives some practical instruction on how to live a godly life. Because we, we do live out of our, what our convictions are. We live out of our convictions. Ecclesiastes 2.17, this is Solomon's words. And as you think about where he was in his in his life at this time what was he living out of he says there therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit and I read that and I, and I think what a sad place to be and I understand that, that life can be that way 
But it doesn't need to be that way. Because I believe it's possible to enjoy life and find fulfillment in life. And Solomon was basically saying, what's the point? All is vanity. Jesus said in John 12, 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. And that's, that's a warning about putting anything ahead of Christ. So if you put anything ahead of Christ, you're going to lose your life. In verses 10 through 11 here, it mentions three things that we are to do in order to live a good life. And I think we realize that this is not just because that we live a good life and do these things. It does not mean, does not necessarily mean that everything's going to go smoothly in life and that we're not going to have any bumps and uh, bruises in life. But it is simply giving us instruction on how as believers, because of who God is and what he did for us. This is how we are living. He mentions three things here. The first one he says, let him refrain his tongue. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Guarding our tongue and our lips. And I think we would all recognize that this is some, a battle that we all face. It's a spiritual warfare against sinful words. And we can't win this battle alone. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a, a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We need God's help to know when to be quiet. We also need God's help to keep our tongues from evil. Verse 9 here talks about evil acts. In verse 10 it speaks of evil words. We need, we need to guard that. It's something that we battle with. And we need to set a watch like the psalmist said. Set a guard over my mouth. The second thing he mentions here is let him eschew evil. And I know that that word there is not a, a common word for us. But it means to turn away, to turn away from evil. Let us return, let us, let him return away from evil. So it has the idea of repentance. And Larry had a message on this uh, just a few weeks ago. Repentance is a, is a or last Sunday I think it was, is a, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of ways. It does not only say to turn from evil but then also to do good. Because when we, when we repent of something or we're trying to get rid of a bad habit, a struggle that we have, it needs to be replaced with something, with something good. Spiritual development does not happen just by pulling the weeds, but there's flowers that need to be planted. Something needs to be put in there in place of. He says to do good. Turn away from evil and do good. So there's, there's a, an action that we, there's action and we are responsible to, to do something in return of that evil. It needs to be replaced. The third one is let him seek peace. And here again, it's not something that comes on its own. 
but it is something we need to pursue. Peace does not happen automatically. It's something we need to seek. I think ungodly people look for trouble, but godly people look for peace. So we need to pursue it. We need to go after it. Verses 10 and 11 are about what the godly do. And then verse 12 is about what God does. Verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And notice what God's posture is here toward the righteous. We know God is omniscient. He sees everything. He he is everywhere. Yet his eyes are on the righteous. Do you feel God's eyes on your life? The Lord watches over those who trust and obey him. And it also says, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. The God who has ears is also a God who is attentive to the prayers of the righteous. And so it's the the picture of a heavenly father leaning over to hear the prayers of the righteous. Nothing is too small for God or nothing is too big for him to handle. Then also notice how God's posture is towards those that do evil. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Another word you could put there is for, for face is favor. The face of God is, is the favor of God. Numbers 6.26 says, The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It means that God looks upon you with favor. And the opposite is, is for him to turn his face against you. That's the posture that God has toward those that do evil. His face is against them. Again, I ask you, where are God's eyes on you? Does he see you as a righteous person? Or who does he see you? And I'm thankful that God, that the Lord God is gracious toward me that he is gracious toward us and that he is the righteous judge. And it's my prayer and desire that we would live a life so that the eyes of the Lord are over us, that his countenance, his favor is upon us. And I know that that would be anyone's desire, that God's face would shine upon us. And so I want to encourage that we live as a brotherhood that is of one mind that has common devotion to our Lord Jesus, serving him and honoring him and preferring one another, loving each other, being tenderhearted and having humility. And so in reality, submission is is a good thing. It's something that allows us to be led into what is right and to be taken care of properly and to be kept in check. We need each other to do this. 
all for the honor and glory of God. We need each other to keep each other accountable, to be in submission in all these areas where, where Peter challenges us and encourages and teaches us. May it all be for the honor and glory of God that we would be a brotherhood that loves, that is compassionate, that is tender-hearted and forgiving. Kneel with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together this morning. I thank you, God, for who you are. 